This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Let me ask you, what was your first product management job? Okay, well, so my first real product role was actually right after I had uh, finished up a startup that I was working on at the time called Funeral. And I was recruited by this ticketing technology company to be the VP of, actually it wasn't VP, it was director of product strategy. And I remember very clearly having to Google what does a director of product strategy do? <laughs> but that was, it ended up being my first product role was with that uh, ticketing technology company. It was a company called Veritex. In fact, that role, I remember almost trying to convince them that I wasn't right for it. I remember saying, well, you know, I, I never really went to school for product management. And they said, oh, oh, Mike, nobody went to school for product management. <laughs> so it's just kind of, it's crazy though. Yeah, it's not, it hasn't really been a, 
uh, something that's been taught. Yeah, right. And, and it, it sits in the middle of engineering, design, marketing, business development, and even the CEO. It's an incredibly important position. Uh, but yeah, there's, there, there, up until recently, there hasn't been a lot of formal training around it. So, Michael, I know that you were digging into this for this episode. How did this role actually come to be? Yeah, that's what we are going to explore today. Welcome to Rocketship.fm, the podcast where we explore business from culture to sales, from product to growth, and everything in between. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We're your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. So where did it all begin? So to trace the origins of this role of, of product management, we have to go all the way back to the 1930s at P&G. Neil McElroy was responsible for the Kamei soap and had to compete against the dominant ivory soap brand. You've heard of, of ivory soap. Of course. He wrote a memo to his manager and it starts. Wait a minute. Do you, you actually have the memo? Yeah. yeah. Here, I'll, I'll send it over to you. Okay. Awesome. So why don't you go ahead and, and read that first paragraph? Okay, now I let me get the let me get it loaded up here. This is really cool, actually. It's like a little piece of history. All right, ready? Because I think it may be of some help to you in putting through our recommendation for additional men for the promotion department, I'm outlining briefly below the duties and responsibilities of the brand men. This outline does not represent the situation as it is, but we will have it when we have sufficient manpower. In past years, the brand men have been forced to do work that should have been passed on to assistant brand men if they had been available and equal to the job. I don't I don't think we'd have brand men as a title today. Definitely not. No, but the, the brand men were essentially his manifesto on what would become a brand manager today. The responsibilities range from tracking sales to managing the product and advertising, even the promotion of of the product that they were responsible for. And they had to take full responsibility for the brand's implementation on the advertising and sales side. Now, this is a little bit different than the product management we see today, but it took a huge weight off of the other directors and executives in the company and put it onto this brand men position. So this memo was written by McElroy. Who's McElroy? Yeah, he was no slouch. is the scene of a significant ceremony as President Eisenhower decorates outgoing Defense Secretary Wilson with the Medal of Freedom and thanks him for his service to the nation. His successor, Neil McElroy, is sworn in and congratulated by the chief executive who laughingly comments, now you're a bureaucrat. The Defense Department, with its $39 billion appropriation, is a post demanding one of Washington's top administrators. later became the Secretary of Defense and helped found NASA. He also advised at Stanford, where he influenced two young entrepreneurs, Bill Hewitt and David Packard. I think I've heard those names before. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you have. Okay, so did he end up getting his hires, his brand men? Yes, uh, he got his two hires. It was a very convincing memo, I, I do would agree. So this still feels like a 
pretty loose connection to what we have today. Yes. No, it, it was. But remember those two Stanford students, Bill Hewitt and David Packard? Yes, I do. So they interpreted the brand men ethos as putting the decision making as close as possible to the customer, making the product manager the voice of the customer internally. And in their book, The Hewlett Packard Way, this was credited with over 50 years of unbroken 20% year over year growth from 1943 all the way to 1993. That's crazy crazy for all of those years, 20% year on year growth. That's powerful. We see some other positions evolve in different ways. Um, and I talked to Ellen Chisa about some of the, the developments of the product manager over the years. So some of it was, I learned it at work. So Microsoft had a lot of internal writing about program management and where the role came from, particularly Stephen Snopsky did a bunch of it, who at the time I was there ran Windows, but prior to that had run Office. Um, and so some of it was there. I'm trying to think of where else it was. And then I think I was also connected at the time to Harvard Business School because I'd been admitted through the 2 plus 2 program. And so I'd spent a lot of time looking at how did business school think about product management. I'd also noticed that the role tended to come up in other industries, but under different titles. So in the agency world, it would sometimes be called producing, um, or in the the musical world as well. Um, And so I kind of just started looking for all of these inspirations of the types of skills that people needed to do the job and how they were applied and treated in different segments. I would have never thought about a music producer being essentially a product role, but that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, me either until she brought it up. But yeah, it's essentially the same role with a lot more publicity. I mean, how many project managers do you know that get national press when a new feature is released? It's unfortunate that we don't have a Rick Rubin of product. I know. We need a Rick Rubin of product. Can you imagine? Anyway, in tech, we see product managers start in marketing. They're focused on the process of understanding the customer's need and finding a way to fulfill those needs using the classic marketing mix. The right product in the right place at the right price. And don't forget, using the right promotion. (laughs) So simultaneously, engineers are taking up a similar position inside of the engineering teams as leaders of the product. This happened at a company you've probably heard of, Microsoft. Here's Ellen Chisa again. Elroy looking at it and saying, oh, there's not one person who's thinking holistically about what the brand means to consumers. And then the same thing sort of happened at Microsoft where people found that when you had a bunch of programmers, they they needed to know, you needed coordination between them to make sure the features that were being built worked well together and there was a cohesive plan. And that wasn't necessarily engineering management. What would happen is that someone who is relatively user-minded would start kind of playing this role by default where they helped make sure the right things were getting built. And so again, it was this role that evolved organically to solve a problem as the organization grew. It wasn't even a management role. It was just an engineer who sort of had the, the social capital within the team and the perspective to bring that to the table. And I think now you still see this to a large extent. At companies that are either understaffed in PM or the PM is newer, you might see a technical lead or a technical manager playing some of the aspects of the product management role. Interesting. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Now, back to the show. Yeah, the early days at Microsoft were 
just that. Really, really interesting. Uh, to get a better idea of what it was like, I called up Mark Zabowski, who was employee number 55 at Microsoft. We were on the eighth floor of a, of a building in Bellevue. Um, most of the office consisted of 8-bit computers that were just sort of stacked on the floor all the way to the ceiling. Um, everybody had offices, but there was a central area that all the manufacturer's hardware was, was stored. And uh, like I said, it was just piled up to the ceiling. So if you wanted to find you know, something that was made by NEC, you had to dig through and find it. If you wanted to find a, a pet computer, PET, you had to go and dig into there for it. And then in a, in a secret room off to the side, attached to an Intel in-circuit emulator, was this secret device that was being worked on um, uh, with IBM. It was the secret computer off in the corner. The secret computer was, of course, the IBM PC. Um, that was like a, it was an IBM Microsoft hybrid. Oh, wow. It basically catapulted Microsoft into hardware and software before they were only hardware. Um, but they won this huge contract with IBM to write the software, which was MS-DOS and, you know, eventually would set them on the path to develop Windows. So when was that? Like around that time? <sighs> that was like to be 1981, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, but Microsoft at the time functioned like we think of most, startups functioning oh it was it was it was a lot of fun we would uh, eat we would put in our 14 hour days um and you know wake up at whenever developers wake up which i was always an early riser but that meant that i would get in at work at nine and i knew that i would have between nine and noon that i'd be by myself no one would come into the office and then you know we'd work until seven or eight at night um, it was a great group of people and then at seven or eight at night, we would actually all leave work, go grab burgers, et cetera, and then show up at this one tavern, a place called The Nowhere, where we played foosball and shot pool until, until we fell asleep. And then we would you know, sort of repeat that for the weekend. I've worked at a couple startups in my lifetime here. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's a clear need for the product management role in this environment. And as Microsoft grew, they started to take engineers and move them into this product management role. Yeah, I can see how that would be effective. I mean, one of the most important skills of a product manager is building that social capital with your team. And who better to do that than an engineering peer at a company like Microsoft? We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Now, back to the show. So there, there may not have been a lot of talk about this product management role, but the 80s were actually a booming time for thought around business. And I talked with Matt LeMay, the author of Product Management in Practice, about this evolution over the past 30 years or so. Uh, in a funny way, I feel like business at large understood this better about 20 years ago than it does now. In the late 80s, early 90s, there were a lot of really good business books written about communication and about how the biggest challenges for business are communication. And then once we kind of hit the second dot-com boom and technology swallowed everything around us, I think people kind of forgot about that. And we're like, oh, well, now it's all about tools and technology and whatever the soft skill stuff is, like whatever that goes off to the side again. What about the Agile Manifesto? Yeah, that's a it's a great point and, and definitely a turning point in product management techniques. Uh, the Agile Manifesto was written in 2001 when about 17 engineers got together on a ski resort. And it was heavily influenced by ideas like Scrum, which came before it, and Kanban, which is implemented under Toyota um, as far back as 1953. 
Yeah, there's nothing new under the sun now, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but we keep moving forward. And eventually Eric Reese writes the Lean Startup and the rest is... History? Yeah, you could say that. So, and I think the last thing to touch on here is the software. Yeah, and there's definitely been an explosion of software supporting product managers in the last 10 years. Right, from management, analytics, and analysis. It feels like there's something new always hitting the market to approach this problem from a slightly different angle. But I'm not sure software, I mean, it can help, but I don't know if it can make you a great PM. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and I asked Matt LeMay about this, and here's what he had to say. Um, you know, when working product managers get together and have the conversation, like, what do you use software-wise? Do you use Trello? Do you use Asana? Um, people, you know, that's not the most important question. Those are all means to an end. And, you know, at the end of the day, most of them are essentially the same software. Um, what it really comes down to is how you connect and align the people you work with. And, you know, to some extent, that means you will never master the job of product management because there are always new people. There are always new perspectives. The role is constantly changing because the role is largely defined by the people around it. Um, so you can practice. You can start to develop kind of the emotional fortitude of communicating things, even when they seem politically dangerous or super obvious. Um, but it is a practice that product managers need to keep developing throughout their lives and careers. And I don't think you ever develop sort of a, an absolute unchallenged expertise in it. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, so you don't miss future episodes in this series. And if you like today's episode, tell a friend. Or two friends, or a lot of friends. We would love it if you would spread the word. <laughs> and for more episodes, you can go check us out at Rocketship FM. And you'll see us back here in just a couple days. Thank you.